0: Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain... Plus, free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. All three branches of government are in the spotlight this week. Today, we check in on the executive and
1: legislative branches and discuss President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court with one of Judge Gorsuch's former clerks.
0: This is Sarah, and I'm a liberal. This is Beth, and I'm a conservative. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics.
1: No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
0: We're so excited today to be talking to Jason Murray, Farmer Lockhart, for Judge Neil Gorsuch, Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. But before we get to that, we're going to catch up with the other branches of government in the pearls, uh, share a little bit of feedback, and then maybe some more feedback and talk about the Super Bowl in the heels.
1: So the executive branch continues to work toward getting cabinet nominees confirmed. So let's just do a quick check-in on where we are. A
0: little roll call. A little roll call.
1: A little roll call. So, so far, we have confirmed Mike Pompeo at the CIA, uh, Kelly, Chow, Haley, Mattis, and Tillerson. That's where we are. And most of these have been along party lines. Tillerson was extremely close and the most recent confirmation. And DeVos is expected to be a nail biter yeah. this week as well.
0: Um, I'm hearing so from so many of our listeners who are um, calling, 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 calling and maybe not getting through or not feeling like. I, I, I read a really interesting exchange. Somebody called. I think it was Tennessee. No, Oklahoma. I don't remember. But they got through and they were like, have you heard from people opposed to DeVos? And They were like, yes. Have you heard anybody In favor of DeVos? No. And you're still going to vote in favor? Yes. And I was like, dude, lie to people. Tell them you haven't decided yet. Don't be so brazen.
1: I don't know what to say about DeVos. Her confirmation hearing was Was so disastrous. Yes. And I think that wherever you are philosophically on school choice, you have to look at the nominee and think this person must be at a basic level of qualification. Yeah. Yeah. And And I just don't think she clears that bar. I really don't. Mm
0: -mm. Nobody thinks that. I don't think even the people voting for her think that. You couldn't possibly think that and and listen to her basic confusion about education policy. It's basic confusion and oxymoron. I think it might be.
1: I don't know. I that's a linguistic exercise for us to think about. We heard from someone (laughs) recently who has like a linguistics PhD. So maybe she can help us with that. So the executive
0: branch has also been busy with the uh, repercussions, shall we say, of the executive order regarding the uh, immigration and refugee bans policies. I don't know what the appropriate word is right now. Well, no one (laughs) one wants to
1: call it like everyone wants to call it a Muslim ban. And then everyone else says that's a totally unfair characterization. So why don't we say immigration restrictions? Is that a fair way to talk about this?
0: I will say, though, that I had a clarification with somebody that was um, a hardcore Donald Trump supporter on Facebook. I posted this little exchange on our Instagram page and I thought it was super illustrative in that I you know, everybody kept saying Muslim ban, and then you would have Donald Trump supporters be like, how dare you? It's not a Muslim ban. There are all these countries that have Muslims. And finally, I said, you know, the issue, particularly with regards to Sally Yates, the attorney general that Donald Trump fired for refusing to enforce this ban, um, that was crazy. We didn't even have a show during that, um, was that people are calling it a Muslim ban because Donald Trump during his campaign Called for a Muslim ban and his intent in passing this executive order is important. And just a little constitutional recap we can't have a Muslim ban because that's a religious test and violates our Constitution's Establishment Clause. And when I said that, if somebody was like, oh, well, more people should say that, that's not getting through. And I was like, maybe it's not. But just on the Justin case, that's the issue, y'all. Like between Rudy Giuliani saying, Donald Trump asked me to do it, but legal, and Donald Trump himself saying it was a Muslim ban. and not to mention Steve Bannon's role in this whole thing, it's it's problematic. I also
1: think it's different to, because the Trump administration keeps talking about these are seven countries designated by the Obama administration. Right, but for a totally different purpose. <laughs> Again, I, I don't take issue, I don't fully agree, but I don't take issue with wanting to Very carefully control the flow of people into our country so that those who are here to do us harm cannot get in. I'm 100% there. I just don't see... I can't connect the dots from what this order does and that goal. That's my problem.
0: My issue is, first of all, their brazen attempts to scare the crap out of people are getting old. And also just sort of lame. I mean he and I don't know why in his tweets he keeps putting fear in parenthesis in quotation marks either. So stop doing that. Stop trying to freak people out. That's inappropriate if really anybody in a position of authority, but particularly the president. Second of all, all the experts on these issues on the refugee sort of crisis and you know extreme terrorism say that these types of bans and these types of policies make it worse so why don't you listen to the people whose jobs it is to protect us and what really bothers me is he seems to be operating under this worldview in which there is it's sort of this sort of black and white i will protect you no one will get through which is just crap does anybody believe that like there's no way Even if we ban, if we do institute a Muslim ban, that you are going to keep every single person that wants to perform any sort of terrorist act out of the United States, particularly because some of them are already in the United States. It's just such a foolish exercise. It's so ridiculous.
1: Well, I really believe, right or wrong, my personal fear is less people coming into our country from other countries And more people here becoming radicalized Mm
0: -hmm. by, let's say, religious um, discriminatory acts by our executive branch. That would radicalize me.
1: I do think that this could have that effect. And and so people living in the United States with access to weapons and knowledge of vulnerable places that becomes impossible to track. And that scares me much more than people coming over here from overseas.
0: And, the, and then just the generalized, particularly from Steve Bannon, who has now been placed on the National Security Council, much to many people's concern, he just seems to be interested in this sort of like fear-based, white supremacist, destabilizing worldview. And it's just freaking me out.
1: Let me ask you what you thought about Sean Spicer's comments on Steve Bannon at the National Security Council. So Spicer, if you didn't catch this, said, look, advisors to the president sit in the NSC all the time. David Axelrod was constantly
0: there. We're just being transparent about it. Well, wasn't the issue? Well, I read something about that, that, you know, um... In Bush's White House, they purpo- who, somebody purposely kept Rove out of those, right? He was not allowed to come. Because there is a concern that we don't want your political concerns to taint our national security decision-making. And I think that there were some people excluded from Obama's White House. I don't think Axelrod was in there all the time. But there was constant pushback of, like, he doesn't need to be in there. He doesn't need to be in there. I, I subscribe to the let's keep political and security separate. Um, so I don't think Axelrod should have been there. But I also don't think David Axelrod has some sort of – I mean, David Axelrod didn't find found Breitbart. Even if you disagree with his politics, his past is not as concerning as Steve Bannon's, you know? I definitely
1: view them differently, but I think that the comments about the role are interesting and appropriate. I don't understand enough about how the NSC functions – to to really speak intelligently on this, but just gut reaction, I think having a political advisor to the president involved with the National Security Council is a terrible idea and transparent or not is something that shouldn't happen.
0: And also I, I mean let's be let's let's be. Completely transparent. Most of us don't even want Steve Bannon in the White House. All right. No, like, We don't, don't want him there at all. So we definitely don't want him in an upper level meeting. The dude's scary. And I'm hoping that between Saturday Night Live ripping into him and everybody else calling him President Bannon, that'll get under Trump's skin enough that he'll stop falling for whatever that man is whispering into his ear, I swear. Well,
1: I think destabilization is a good word to use about Bannon because I do think that's ultimately his objective. Mm hmm.
0: Well, my friend was telling me that there's this theory of the it's called the fourth turning, I think, and that there's these cycles in history where everything gets upended. And Steve Bannon has like openly said that he is a believer in this in this um, sort of historical description and that he thinks it's some people's jobs to push this destabilizing historical um, events. And I mean, I wonder if that's how he sees himself. It seems to be. I mean, he has that crazy quote about Lenin, too.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely how he sees himself. I think Steve Bannon is a is a person on a mission. Ugh. I think he's very clear about what he thinks his purpose in history is. I do want to say something about Sally Yates, though, and I know this is going to be unpopular, but I think that where I came to really disagree with her was the statement that she put out regarding why the Justice Department would not defend the immigration restrictions Because I felt when I first saw what she had decided to do, I thought, you know, on one hand, everybody serves at the pleasure of the president. On the other hand, lawyers have a duty to only file documents that they in good faith believe represent reasonable interpretations of law. And I can see as a lawyer saying, I cannot in good faith make an argument in the defense of this law from a constitutional perspective. Now there are people who are going to disagree with that, but but like we talk about with our guests coming up, there's always room for disagreement on constitutional law. So right. uh, so if she was saying as a lawyer, I don't believe our department can in good faith represent this. That's one thing. But that's not what she was saying. I mean, she basically said as a human being, mm. I cannot defend this action. Fine. But I think the more appropriate course of action would have been to resign at that point because. Well, there was discussion
0: of her resigning, apparently, and she was just she felt like to slow it down. She knew that somebody else would just show up and enforce it. And she wanted to slow it down and sort of take a stand.
1: So in that way, I think that her firing was not unjustified. I think that that is probably you you can't have that. Right. Like you, even if we don't like Trump and we don't want Trump to be successful and we we don't like this immigration restriction. The administration can't function that way. So I sort of hate the drama around like the Monday Night Massacre with her. I think that's all really misplaced. I mean, basically, you have here someone who said, my job is to represent the United States government. The chief executive of the United States government has done something that I personally disagree with. And I'm just going to stand here as an impediment. I mean, of course, he's going to fire her. That, that's just how it works.
0: Well, I mean, I think the issue isn't that she she should have never had to do that in the first place because that executive order should have been properly vetted and it wasn't. I, mean, I 100
1: percent agree with that.
0: To me, the most dramatic, amazing thing coming about the story is about Steve Bannon going to John Kelly's office and John Kelly saying, you're not in my chain of command. I will yes. not enforce the green card um requirement of this until i hear from president trump that story which we'll link to in the show notes is way more dramatic and way more interesting as far as they and like all the stuff about like mattis was just being confirmed he hadn't seen it because that's when i when this came out i was like dude i was depending on you mad dog you're supposed to be like reining him in where you at boy um so apparently he just didn't know about it that's why
1: I completely agree. And, and the thing that I said on Twitter is my husband looked at me and said, would you have fired her? And I said, I would have had to read the order before I signed it. You know, yeah, exactly. so I wouldn't have been in this position. Yeah. But
0: were I in this position? Yes, I would have fired her. That's how these things work. Interesting. So before we move on to the judicial branch, when we with our guests, we wanted to check in with Yield Congress, who's also been busy. And Ken, here's where I'm coming from with this. Congress took a lot of actions. They rolled back the stream protection rule, which prevents coal companies from dumping into streams. They eliminated the rule requiring energy companies to disclose payments to foreign countries. They eliminated the expanded background check for mentally ill people for gun purchases. And I'm all I'm saying is that if there's a lot of extra attention on Congress and you're the Republican Party governing for the first time, this is what you lead with, guys? Like, this is what you want to start out the gate with? I mean, I guess that's fine, but what, not what I would have chosen.
1: Well, I think that eliminating the expanded background checks, I think that was a good change. Now, you know that I'm in favor of reasonable regulation on guns. I think this was a serious overreach. I mean, this, this swept in people receiving Social Security assistance. We've, we've talked about this before. I don't think we understand mental illness well enough To And I think we stigmatize mental illness so much now. This isn't helpful to that cause.
0: Yeah, but it's not how it reads, right? No one's going to dig into the policy and be like, oh, well, this is their problem with it. Like, it sells bad. Don't lead with that. It sounds like you want to give guns to mentally ill people. So figure out some other stuff to pass first. I'm just saying.
1: Well, it, no one in the Republican Party seems to be great with PR, <laughs> and I think that's a fair criticism but yeah. I, I I was glad to see that action taken I think
0: dream protection though in the energy comp I mean they did that energy company thing the day Tillerson was confirmed. Bad timing, guys.
1: It doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. I do think that you know I will be somewhat defensive of deregulation generally. I don't I I think it reads really bad. Right. All of these articles read like there's good on one side and evil on the other. And good is protecting the streams and evil is let's fill the stream with toxic chemicals and poison each other. I mean, there is room for a place in the middle. And you have to look at how effective are some of these rules. Right. And does the regulation, just like we're talking about with the immigration restriction, does the law accomplish the goal of the law or is it just a thing out there and and i don't know i don't know enough about the stream act to speak as an expert on that but i i think there's room for that to not be the kind of good versus evil that it sounds like but it does feed into the worst stereotypes of the republican party
0: and i'm just not sure they care at this point and i think they really should because people are paying attention i mean Uh Tom McClintock, did you see what happened at his town hall in California to be like escorted out? People are riled up, man. Don't lead with that stuff. I guess that they might be thinking that Trump takes
1: up all the oxygen in the room. So let's do some of the harder things in Congress right now and hope that the public is distracted by Trump. I don't know what the strategy is or if there is
0: one. I don't know. I'm not sure there is one. I'm sure. I think it's just let's do what we want to do, which I I, again not not without not my choice. But. So before we move on to the judicial branch with our guests, we'll go ahead and compliment compliment the other side. Beth, do you want to start?
1: Sure. I'm going to compliment uh, Senator Kristen Gillibrand because she has become to be known as Dr. No for her votes against most of Trump's nominees. But she did vote in favor of confirming Nikki Haley. And I wanted to compliment that. I don't know her reasoning on any of these choices, but I was happy to see that vote in favor of Haley, if only for the fact that it it looks like she is taking a principled decision-making process for each of these nominees. And it, it would be easy to ride this wave of like... Gillibrand 2020 she voted against all the Trump team right and and I thought that it was indicative of more thoughtfulness than that and less of a self-serving purpose that she voted to confirm Nikki
0: Haley so I'm going to compliment um the governor of our state Matt Bevin he um signed an executive or like whatever an executive order for a governor is removing the criminal background check or the criminal background box on state um job applications and encourage private employees to follow him. And he's been sort of a, unfortunately, he has not enfranchised voters and uh, fel- particularly nonviolent felony offenders um, who have served their time in Kentucky. But he was sort of took the stand of people deserve to start their lives over and not be defined uh, by the mistakes they made for the rest of their lives. And so bravo, Matt Bevan. Good job. Our governor is a complex person. Woo. He's a mystery wrapped in an enigma,
1: that one. He sure is. But I mean, there is there is a lot more good there than meets the eye sometimes. So mm-hmm. I was happy to see this too. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray.
0: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups, and there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com pantsuit that's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories dot com slash pantsuit. Dipsy dot com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit.
1: So up next, we are going to talk with I'm going to call him Michelle's husband, (laughs) Jason Murray, who has the unique background of having clerked for not only Judge Gorsuch, but also Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan.
0: So we are so excited to be here today with Jason Murray, and I'm going to let him give you his um, professional sort of resume, but the most important fact is his wife, Michelle, is a huge fan of our show, and that's how we got him on here today. <laughs> We're so excited to have you, Jason.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am currently a partner, uh, law partner in Denver at the uh, law firm of Bartlett, Beck, Herman, Palanchar, and Scott's, and before that, I had the pleasure to clerk for Judge Neil Gorsuch, who is on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals here in Denver, uh, and who's now been nominated for a position to the Supreme Court. And I also had the pleasure of, after my clerkship with him, going on to clerk for Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan.
0: Now, that's a very interesting um, political spectrum you've got between those two judges.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think if you got the two of them in a room together and have them talk about politics, you'd get a lot of pretty vigorous disagreement on a lot of issues. Um, but I think despite that, they actually have a remarkably similar approach to, to sort of their role as a judge and how they go about analyzing legal issues, even if that often leads them to different conclusions in the end.
1: I want to hear a lot about that. But before I t- before we do, can you tell people who aren't familiar with the judicial system what it means to clerk for a judge?
2: Yeah, so most uh, federal judges at least have... Um, between two and four law clerks every year, and the law clerk position is a it's a one year position uh, typically, and it's people generally right out of or shortly out of law school so people who've just graduated law school will go and work for a judge for a year and and kind of help them out with researching and writing opinions uh, talking with the judges about how cases should come out um, and, and just you know being assistance to the judge in whatever way that that they need in order to kind of decide cases and write opinions.
1: So when you were clerking with, let's start with Judge Gorsuch. I've seen you quoted in several sources, um, speaking of him with, with great personal fondness. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship you had with him and sort of what what isn't coming across in the news cycle when you're just kind of hearing these comparisons to Judge Scalia, Justice Scalia?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think just as a as a person, you know, you'd be really hard pressed, I think, to find somebody that's more just sort of just decent and and humble and genuine and and uh, respectful. Um, you know, he, he he very much takes his law clerks under wing, um, takes his role very seriously to sort of mentor us, kind of teach us sort of how to be good legal thinkers, how to be good legal writers, and. He sort of has a loyalty to his clerks that kind of follows you for the rest of your career and, you know, will go to bat for you and, you know, in subsequent job applications. And, uh, you know, he has us over for ski trips and hiking trips and uh, barbecues at his house. You know, I mean, he's just a very warm, very personable man. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that in the sort of partisan sniping that goes on whenever you've got, uh, you know, a, a contentious Supreme Court fight brewing. Um, but just as a, as a person, you know, everybody who knows him, Democrats, Republicans, you know, everything in between, I think generally have nothing but admiration for him.
0: Well, I feel sorry for him in the same way I felt sorry for Merrick Garland, who seemed they both seemed just like <laughs> very nice men with great resumes and, you know, like perfectly qualified, nothing really to complain about. And then because of the sort of time in history, they've both found themselves. They've walked into... a really... I would, you know, categorize it as a sort of uh, um, out-of-the-ordinary experience. I mean, as much as being confirmed to the Supreme Court is an ordinary experience, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it just no, I mean, like I, that.
2: Well, I, think, I think that's exactly right. And I think the comparison to Merrick Garland is is apt in some ways. I mean, here is a, a person much like Merrick Garland, who was, you know, is, is sort of universally considered among lawyers and judges to be one of the absolute best and brightest minds on the federal bench right now. I think both of them would very much fall into that category. Uh, people who were, you know, widely sort of admired from both sides of the aisle as as appellate court judges. You know, I mean, Judge Gorsuch was confirmed unanimously to his position yeah. on the federal appellate court. There wasn't a single Democratic senator voicing opposition to him. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, I'm one who thinks that the, the way that Merrick Garland was treated in the confirmation process by Senate Republicans is, is truly shameful and, and truly kind of an abuse of the, of the process of advice and consent. Uh, you know, I think it's a shame and it speaks poorly to, uh, you know, Congress and to our system of government not working properly when somebody as sort of like, uh, you know, on, unerringly qualified uh, uh, as as Judge Garland can't even get a hearing. Um, but I certainly feel the same way about Judge Gorsuch. I think that he is, uh, you know, one of the most thoughtful, uh, sort of, you know, careful, bright judges on the bench. Uh, and it would be real shame if he was if he was mistreated, uh, or, or kind of used as a political football here. Yeah.
0: Does it well, so- I did hear... Go ahead,
1: Beth. Oh, I, I was just going to ask if it surprises you at all that President Trump nominated him. I asked the question, <laughs> considering how you just
0: described him. Yeah. Well, well, I asked
1: the question mostly because I think what gets lost in all of the media coverage of the Supreme Court the words conservative and progressive are thrown around in ways that are different politically than judicially, right? So Judge Judge Gorsuch, Justice Scalia even, both very um, pro-defendants in criminal cases, right, in a way that might be confusing to people who think that conservatism should line up across the political and judicial spectrum. So when I look at what I've read about Judge Gorsuch and his Genuine commitment to restraining the power of the executive branch. that seems like a a departure from where the Trump administration is,
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting question. I, I I've certainly thought for a while now that that uh, Judge Gorsuch would be at the very top of the short list of any Republican uh, who ascended to the presidency just because of his his sort of qualifications and his resume. And. He is a name that I think sort of conservative court watchers have have had on their list for a while. Uh, you know, who's to predict anything that Donald Trump thinks or does? It's, it's sort true. of hard to uh, no, seriously, uh, hard hard to hard to guess. Um, and and you know, my completely uninformed speculation would be that that uh, Judge Gorsuch was a name that was really pushed by kind of the, the traditional establishment conservatives who who care deeply about the court. I, I suspect that Donald Trump knows at some level that one of the reasons why he is president is because there are a lot of people in this country who believe very strongly and have very strong opinions about the Supreme court on the Republican side, maybe more so than the democratic side of the electorate. Uh, and we're, you know, we're willing to sort of hold their noses and, and vote for him because they know that, you know, whoever picks the next couple of Supreme court justices could, uh, kind of dictate the direction of the country for the next 20 years, uh, in the judiciary. Um, But, you know, what you said about Judge Gorsuch having, you know, uh, a solicitude for criminal defendants and other things that don't necessarily fall neatly along partisan lines, I think is really true. And one of the things I try to communicate when I'm talking to people who are non-lawyers about the Supreme Court is, you know, in coverage of the Supreme Court, people focus on, you know, a handful of hot button issues, and understandably so, because they're important issues, things like, you know, abortion, gay marriage. But what often gets lost in that conversation is that, you know, Supreme Court decides two, three, four cases every year addressing those hot-button issues collectively, uh, and some 80 other cases that really don't divide neatly along traditional partisan lines, uh, but that are tremendously important. Uh, cases about criminal defense, cases about separation of powers, cases about um, the administrative state. And it's interesting because some of these issues really are not Partisan, as you mentioned, you know, Justice Scalia uh, is actually, in some respects, a favorite of the criminal defense bar, not something that you you would typically associate with a a conservative position. Um, But Justice Scalia, the sort of conservative lion on the court for the last few decades, uh, took a very narrow view of interpreting federal criminal statutes and, and pushed back when the government tried to read federal criminal prohibitions broader than their terms uh, would suggest that's something that judge corsage very much shares i also think judges are not always divided neatly along liberal or conservative lines when it comes to executive power um there are some conservatives uh, some conservative judges who are very in favor of the idea that you know the executive should have unrestrained authority uh in in wide swaths of uh um issues like immigration and foreign affairs and uh there are some liberals who share that view, too, and just hope that that power is used differently. Um, so I, I think if we, we're tempted to judge our judges by the standards that we, we judge our politicians, but it's not always a fair comparison.
0: Well, I, we have a former guest on the show that's been um, really – I think he started collecting them into an, uh, a Tumblr account of questions to ask Judge Gorsuch when he be- – when he becomes comes before the Senate and I wonder what you think how he'll handle all the is well what do you think about Donald Trump doing this and what do you think about Donald Trump doing this questions
2: yeah you know it'll be interesting I think it depends a lot on what the questions are I I would suspect in a lot of cases the answer would be it's not my role to comment on that because Mm -hmm. Judge Gorsuch I think is, is a very strong believer in the idea that, that law and politics are, are separate enterprises. And I think he would say it's not the role of a, of a, you know, of a president to sort of attack, uh, or condemn the judiciary. And it's not the role of the judiciary to attack or condemn politicians. Um, you know, I think if you look at his, his opinions while he was on the appellate court, they, they, they show really kind of strong belief in the idea that, uh, that, you know, our system of government is predicated on, on the judiciary being independent and being able to provide a check on abuses of power by the executive and legislative branch.
1: When you hear all of the comparisons to Justice Scalia, how does that sit with you knowing Judge Gorsuch as you do?
2: You know, I know that there are a lot of people with a tremendous amount of respect for Justice Scalia, and uh, I, I'm I'm one of those people, even though I don't share uh, much of his politics. I think my politics are probably much closer to Justice Kagan than than Justice Scalia. But I think Justice Scalia did a tremendous service to the court and the legal profession in terms of changing how we think about the the what the role of a judge is, uh, and and sort of commitment to the rule of law and and to the notion that judges shouldn't use their perches as, as a platform for advancing their own political agenda. Now, we're all human and you can question whether Justice Scalia himself, especially in his later years, always lived up to that principle. Um, but he changed the, the the conversation about judging, I think, in a profound way. Um, and, and I think on that metric, um, Judge Gorsuch is very similar to Justice Scalia. Uh, and actually, frankly, to, to my other old boss, uh, Justice Kagan, who I think very much shares that same that same commitment to the idea that the role of a judge is to interpret the law as it is and not as the judge would wish it to be, um, and obviously there are always going to be close and difficult legal questions and and re- and plenty of room for for people of good faith to disagree. But it's sort of a shared starting point, I think.
0: Well, and I think, I guess I didn't really even fully understand myself, even as somebody who went to law school, the impact Justice Scalia had on the way decisions were written. I listened to a really good thing on NPR talking about, like, they used to be, I mean, it's not like I didn't read them in law school and kind of see the shift in the way that the language was of the decisions and um, sort of the approach to make it more understandable and more approachable generally. And, and I thought that was a really interesting thing. Um, you know, how he would throw jokes in there and little phrases mm-hmm. and to get people's attention. Make those Supreme Court opinions sexy, as the case may be. Um, <laughs> I'm really interested in um, Judge Gors- Gorsuch. I struggle with his name. <clears throat> um, Gors- Gorsuch. Gorsuch. Um, uh, he has written about assisted suicide, and everybody's sort of trying to project that onto his opinions about reproductive freedom. When I really think the opinion itself is interesting, on its own because I I see assisted suicide um, as something becoming increasingly acceptable. And um, I know, you know, I know California changed their law recently and I was wondering what you thought about his opinions on that and sort of what, I don't want to ask you to speculate on his decisions for the Supreme court, but just (laughs) um, how passionately he feels about that issue. And I'm assuming pretty passionately since he's written on it in the past.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, his book is fascinating on that question. I think it comes very much from a, uh, it, it's informed by his, his work. I mean, he, he has a philosophy PhD and he studied under um, some some sort of famous natural law philosophers, uh, mm. including uh, a man by the name of Robert George, who's very well regarded in, in sort of moral philosophy circles. Uh, you know, and, and I think his book very much speaks to a deep-seated belief that uh, you know, in sort of a, a, a typical religious view of, of the assisted suicide issue, which is sort of the intentional taking of a, of a human life by private persons is, is wrong, except in self-defense uh, and a pretty vigorous defense of that principle. Uh, I think it's kind of hard to read too much into his, his sort of moral arguments about assisted suicide, what he's going to do on other contested social issues when they come up for the court, because you know, I think he very much views law and and politics or, or moral judgment as separate enterprises. And I think he would be the first to say, my job as a judge isn't to sit here and tell you whether assisted suicide is moral or not. It's to to sort of say, well, you know, is there some basis in the law for me to say you can or can't do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I haven't had any personal conversations with him about it. I did find his book very interesting. But I, I just caution people that You know, he he is somebody who believes very strongly that your role as a judge is not just to sit as as a sort of arbiter of of social mores.
1: Do you think that people are reading too much into his Hobby Lobby decision?
2: I think people are always going to read way too much into everything that he said and done. (laughs) Well, that's that's (laughs) fair. You know, it's kind of the nature of this process. Uh, You know, I think one thing to keep in mind about the Hobby Lobby decision is that that's a, I think it's a really tough issue. I think that there are good arguments both ways. And, you know, I think what gets, what gets lost in the sort of public reporting about Hobby Lobby is that it gets reported as though the question is kind of, is it a good idea as a matter of practice and policy for, uh, for employers to be exempt from uh, birth control rules or providing, you know, uh, health insurance policies that, that, offer birth control. And that's really not the legal issue that the courts are, are being called upon to ask. You know, they're being called to, to decide a pretty difficult, actually, issue of interpreting a federal statute known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which, which imposes pretty strict burden on the government if it tries to, to enact laws that uh, burden religious exercise. Um, and I think that there are sort of very compelling uh, legal arguments on both sides of that case um and uh it, it, you know when you're a judge the question is just a referendum on what you think the outcome should be
0: what do you think um are the chances that he could move you know there's always this idea that judges that the supreme court tends to make people or make judges more liberal as time goes on and everybody always uses souter as an example and i wondered what if you thought what you thought the the possibility of that was <laughs>
2: Oh, I I don't think that that justice or that uh, Judge Gorsuch is going to be a, another another suitor. Certainly Dang. not. I think that he has. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know. Um, he, you know, but he's 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 a man of, of great principle, and he he has a very long and uh, uh, and pretty consistent record as being a conservative. And I use that term both in terms of his his political beliefs, but also in terms of his approach to judging his judicial philosophy. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't expect that he would be the kind of person who, 20 years down the road, is you know, is basically a, a, a liberal. Um, but I do think that if you're a liberal and you're deeply concerned, as I am, about the direction of the country under Donald Trump, there are there are some real silver linings here. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that anybody nominated by a conservative president is going to be a conservative. But Judge Gorsuch, among other things, has a very long record of in pretty meticulously enforcing limits on executive power, which is a big issue right now. And some of his most notable, notable opinions were actually opinions. where He ruled against the Bureau of Immigration Affairs when they tried to, um, deny legal status to certain undocumented workers based on, on, uh, sort of an assertion of executive power that judge Gorsuch found dubious. So he's not the kind of person who's going to hesitate to stand up to Donald Trump, or to Congress when they sort of cross the line. Um, I think that there's a very long record uh, in his appellate court decisions that bear that out.
0: Well that's a good uh, transition because in the beginning of our show we were checking on the, the different branches and we paused to check on the judicial branch so we had you on the phone. What are your thoughts on the latest um, uh, decisions coming down from the court regarding Donald Trump's travel ban and his responses to them? <clears throat>
2: It's going to be really interesting to see how they play out. It's still at a very preliminary stage. Um, you know, the courts, none of the courts have had a chance to issue a full decision on merits yet. Uh, these are decisions that are, are preliminary and basically saying, look, we think there's a there's a good chance that the challengers to this law are going to, this executive order are going to succeed. And so we're going to kind of put the brakes on until we've had a chance to fully brief those issues and fully vet them. Um, you know, myself, I think that there are some very, profound, uh, legal and constitutional flaws with the executive order. Uh, you know, even though on its face, it doesn't say anything about Muslims or discriminate against Muslims. It certainly does in practice. And we know from uh, a huge, huge, uh, litany of statements that Donald Trump made during the campaign that his goal, uh, was mm-hmm. to, to put the brakes on Muslim immigration specifically to the United States. So there's, I think a pretty clear religious animus there that's uh, very constitutionally suspect. Um, But, you know, I think it's going to be a legal fight that's going to play out for for quite some time.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. I noticed when you were answering not to backtrack but I noticed when you were responding to Sarah's question about the assisted suicide book that you you used the phrase private persons taking life and when I have have been reading about Judge Gorsuch and his book the death penalty instantly came to mind for me looking down the field a little bit on what might come to the next Supreme Court you know I could make an argument that as a conservative the Court overturning uh, or you know, basically finding that the death penalty is inconsistent with the Constitution isn't a hard call. Um, I-, I wondered what your thoughts are on that generally. I'm not asking you to speak speak to Judge Gorsuch specifically, but just as uh-huh. someone who spent time in the court, uh, what you could foresee happening with the death penalty?
2: Well, you know, I think some of the justices have written opinions very publicly questioned the death penalty. Recently, Justice Breyer wrote an opinion where he, he took the position that the way that the death penalty has been applied uh, raises very serious problems with its constitutionality writ large. Uh, and that's definitely going to be a salient issue. Now, I know that, I mean, if you I haven't had any conversations with Judge Gorsuch, and we didn't address any cases my year about the constitutionality of the death penalty, I, I think that... Um, you know, but I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he took the position that many of the other conservative justices have taken uh, towards the death penalty, which is to say, you know, I mean, if you look at the Constitution, if you're starting from the Constitution's text, and I say this as somebody who's pretty liberal, I think that there's a lot of moral problems with the death penalty. The the Constitution, the Due Process Clause, right there, uh, says, you know, that the, the government can't deny life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that sort of necessary implication suggests that there are circumstances under which the government can deprive someone of their life. And there are other references to capital crimes, namely, you know, crimes for which you get the death penalty in the Constitution itself. So I actually find the argument that the death penalty is sort of categorically unconstitutional to be an uphill battle, um, although there are a lot of problems with how it's been applied that I think, uh, you know, people can make a compelling due process case in, in a lot of individual cases that it's not being, uh, the constitutional protections aren't being satisfied right now.
0: What are you uh, of upcoming Supreme court decisions or issues? What would you, um, most look forward to hearing, um, judge Gordon's opinion on?
2: Well, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be a couple of really key issues. I think that, that he's going to be probably called to, to speak on sooner rather than later. Um, for me, I'd be really interested to see both his opinion on the uh, the the, Im- the immigration ban uh, executive order, which I'm sure will make its way to the Supreme Court uh, at some point, unless the, the Trump administration somehow backtracks on that, um, and then also his position on uh, campaign finance issues, which have been mm. a really you know, contentious subject for a long period of time uh, and, and not something that came up either when I was clerking for him, um, or in any of his opinions that I've seen, uh, and, and in any event, you know, as, a, as an appellate court judge, you're very clearly bound by what the Supreme Court has, has said in that area. But it's a fluid area. It's a dynamic area. It's an area that doesn't cut neatly across um, partisan lines necessarily. You know, I mean, Donald Trump, that was yeah. one of his big issues, or at least pur- reported to be one of his big issues, is the influence of money in politics. And certainly Bernie Sanders on the liberal side, brought those same issues to the forefront. So uh, I I think that, you know, there's going to be, I'm sure there will be a few campaign finance cases in the first year or two that will really kind of suss out whether he's going to move the court in one direction or another on that.
1: When you think about the court and sort of all the mystery surrounding the court, what's one thing that you wish the average person understood about the, the Supreme Court?
2: You know, the one thing I really wish that people understood is that that the court decides a ton of really important issues every year that have nothing to do with these sort of hot-button social and partisan issues, but that are are really kind of critical to the functioning of our country and often divide, in very sort of unusual ways, uh, the different factions of the court. So, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court every year decides, you know, dozens of cases involving issues of Patent law and government contracts and uh, administrative law, you know, sort of the power of executive agencies um, to to regulate a whole host of conduct in uh, in the private sector. You know, just to name a few examples and many, you know, not to mention criminal law, um, which, you know, we're talking about uh, ending people's lives, putting them in prison potentially for, for the rest of their lives. I mean, huge implications for society that often gets short shrift in the conversations about the Supreme Court. And, and, you know, many of those cases are unanimous, nine 9-0 decisions. And, and many of them are five, four or six, three, but not along any sort of predictable partisan line at all. You know, even when I was clerking for justice Kagan, there were opinions where justice Kagan wrote the majority opinion joined by, by some of the conservatives. Um, and, uh, justice Sotomayor, one of the other liberals on the court wrote the dissenting opinion Um, You know, in sort of weird lineups that you wouldn't expect just based on the sort of popular notion that like, you know, that the job of the court can be or the result of the court can be predicted just by like adding up the conservatives and liberal votes.
1: I think that is an awesome note to end on. Jason, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was really it was really helpful to me and I hope to our listeners, too.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And tell
0: Michelle we said hi and thank you. I will do that. All right. I'm so glad we get to talk to Jason. That was great.
1: Sarah, do you think most of our listeners know what burgoo is? I don't know. So burgoo is a Kentucky it's basically a stew. It's lots of different meats and lots of different vegetables all put together. It's it feels to me whenever I see it like you just take whatever's in your fridge
0: and you cook it up. That is a little bit the heels today, I think. <laughs> so the heels burgoo. I don't really like burgoo, but I like this idea of approach this approach to the heels.
1: We've gotten some great feedback, and the news is moving so fast that we're having trouble keeping up with that feedback. We're having trouble producing episodes that are still relevant by the time we post. (laughs) them. So we wanted to go through, even though it's not Friday, we wanted to go through some of the feedback that we've received so that it doesn't get stale, and also probably talk about the Super Bowl and maybe whatever
0: else we feel like talking about. So we got some great uh, feedback about the global gag rule that uh, Trump didn't just reverse it like every other Republican president but radically expanded the policy to not just include family planning organizations but all global health organizations that receive u.s government funding and so it'll be a really chilling effect on what these um organizations can say and that many will take will have to lose funding there is some like i previously mentioned that um there's some evidence that these actually that the that rolling back the global gag rule or instituting the global gag rule actually increases abortions. Um, and so one of our listeners sent us a really good um, email about that. So we wanted to share that.
1: Yeah. And we have also gotten some good feedback on just we, we alluded to this earlier, people trying to get through to their representatives and being very discouraged that they cannot. Yeah, get Shana I,
0: wrote us in, and so then I posted it on Facebook, and people had all kinds of good ideas. Her friend has been faxing. Shana and her husband um, gifted. I think her. I think her senator was to me, uh, an ACLU membership, which I thought was brilliant. Now everybody likes the pizza story, but apparently the pizza got turned away by security. So you got to be careful what you send because security won't take it up. But um, you know, I the idea that you could just continue. What really frustrates me and Mitch McConnell's trying to do this too is to ignore his constituents and then blame it on quote-unquote out-of-state activists. That that part really bothers me, but I mean the phone volume sounds unbelievable. It was like 1.5 million calls a day or something bananas.
1: I think that's good. I think that's I think that's great and if nothing good comes out of a Trump presidency other than increasing civic engagement, hooray, right? Yeah, like that's good.
0: Seriously. We've also had lots of great feedback. Um, You guys have written in some really beautiful emails um, from my conversation with Dr. Tweel about her involuntary um, miscarriage and how it became a voluntary abortion because of Ohio State law. People, I had a really great email from a nurse who said like, I didn't really, I hadn't really even thought about it from that perspective and I'm a nurse and how it affects people's ongoing fertility. So all the beautiful messages you sent me and really the kind um, concerns and um sort of sharing your experiences with regards to my pregnancy loss are very much appreciated.
1: That was a wonderful interview Sarah. I was Thank so you. proud of you listening to it and I thought she was a terrific guest. It's a hard subject. What I thought about a lot while listening to it is that I think that reproductive rights is just a problem of the heart that we keep trying to solve with the head. Mm-hmm. And it's it, you know laws aren't built for this kind of complexity.
0: Well, it's sort of what my favorite Krista Tippett quote is, where she says, um, people think religion and science are giving different answers, but diff- yeah, but they're actually asking different questions, which I think is a great way to think about it. And I think sometimes when we have conversations about reproductive rights, we're asking different questions and not noticing that we're asking different questions. <laughs>
1: And one of our listeners sent us a message today saying, I, I don't know how to continue to engage in conversations when we're asking different questions. Mm-hmm. She referenced a conversation with a family member ab- about President Trump and some of his actions. And the family member finally said, look, I don't think that all people are equal. And she said, if if that's where we're starting, I don't know where to go from there. Yeah,
0: I don't know what you say to that. And And I shared sort of a Fareed Zakaria thing about how, um, you know, maybe we're approaching this illiberal democracy which, in which we don't believe that there are minority rights to be protected then every person. I mean, I, I kind of feel like if you don't feel like all people are equal, then you are living in the wrong country because it's sort of the basis upon which our Declaration of Independence and Constitution, as flawed as they may be, were built. So that one, that one, I don't know what to say, to
1: Whenever I find myself in any context, not knowing what to say, usually I just ask a question. So mm-hmm. and my go to question, which I sort of hate to reveal this secret is, can you say more <laughs> about that? And I think that's what I would want to say if I were talking with a family member and the person said, no, I don't think all people were equal. I think I would want to know more about that. Under what rubric are people not all equal? In whose judgment are people not all equal? Who's qualified to make that judgment if not all people are equal? You know, I I would really want to dive into that and try to not have any judgment about it myself in that conversation because you can't understand someone else if you're judging them as they're talking, right? Like... You can judge them later, but if you want to have the conversation, I think you have to remove some of that. I try to remember that when we get pretty aggressive messages, you uh-huh. know, uh, get me getting mad doesn't move things anywhere. So if I'm just mad, then I just don't respond. But if I do respond, I want to respond in a way that is completely open to wherever the person might be coming from. So that's my best advice on that. I know it's hard and it's painful and it's frustrating. And that a lot of people are gonna hear that and think, no, you can't normalize that kind of behavior or whatever verb you want to put in there. And and I think that's fine. That's a fine place to be. You know, I think we like we talk about all the time, we need people who have different feelings and different willingnesses to engage in these kinds of conversations.
0: So today that we're recording is super bowl sunday are you a super bowl person beth
1: i mean i like the commercials
0: yeah my friend jill was like am i gonna get in trouble if i come to your party and i don't watch the game and i'm like do you think i watch the game <laughs> i don't watch the game i eat the food and i watch the commercials and i enjoy the halftime show which apparently we're all supposed to be boycotting because you know lady gaga deigns to have political opinions
1: I am not a boycotter of anything, just like I'm not a marcher, I'm not a boycotter, so I'm not so worried about that. I am usually someone who loves hosting Super Bowl parties because I love, love, love to make appetizers. My children have kind of halted that for me. I'm hoping to get back in the game on it eventually. But yesterday was Jane's sixth birthday party, so I had 18 children under the age of seven in my house.
0: Fun. Let
1: me tell you how delighted I am that I have no obligations for the Super Bowl this evening.
0: Well, we're having some people over for the Super Bowl. It's just an excuse to make my husband make wings. That's pretty much mm -hmm. what it is for me.
1: I imagine that I will take a NyQuil at about 8.15 and be asleep pretty soon after that and probably check in on the commercials tomorrow. I also haven't gotten to watch Saturday Night Live yet. So I can't wait to catch up on Saturday Night Live. Maybe we'll be able to talk about that later this week. We have had some really fun conversations. We spent some time with Matt Mar over on the Dear Maddie Show. I loved Matt Mar the second that we met him in Chicago at Podcast Movement last fall. So I can't wait for you to listen to that conversation. If you haven't already, please go over to the Dear Maddie Show. We have the link for that up on our blog, along with some other great content. You can also hear me talking with Mike of the Politics Guys on the Politics Guys podcast that was released on Sunday. And then later in the week, you'll hear Sarah and Jay talking right here. We have so much planned for you guys, and we can't wait to keep going. It's busy, busy times right now. We're doing our best to keep up with your messages. But it's a wonderful time for us to, again, be involved in all of the civic engagement happening. So even as the news concerns us, we're, we're really excited to have our community and to be
0: part of what's going
1: on. We'll talk to you soon. Keep it
0: nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsu Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics, or Instagram at PantsuPolitics. Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and paint suit primers on social media or you can email us at sarah at paintsoupoliticsshow.com or beth at paintsoupoliticsshow.com.